This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. In July, I had the honor of going to Australia to be a part of IndieCon, a music convention featuring speakers from the independent label trade unions of the UK, the US, Australia, and New Zealand. Today, we're airing a panel called State of the Nations, in which we discussed how many of the issues we're facing in the US are actually global problems. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rock Stars. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. Since 2002, Merch Table has operated and managed online stores for hundreds of successful musicians, record labels, comedians, artists, and small businesses. Big or small, set up shop today by visiting merchtable.com. Today, we hear about issues like safe harbor, performance royalties, YouTube, and more from a global perspective. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Can I have a taste of your ice cream? Can I lick the crumbs from your table? Can I interfere in your crisis? No, mind your own business. No. Support for The Future of What comes from SoundExchange. You're listening to The Future of What. This is a panel from IndieCon 2017 with Lynn Small of PPCA, Richard Burgess of A2IM, Paul Pacifico of AIM, Dylan Pellet of IMNZ, and Matt Rogers of Unified, moderated by Jay Mogus of Nightlife. So, safe harbor and why you should give a <laughs> Stu's language, perhaps. I thought I'd throw to Lynn because, you know, locally she, she's an amazing resource on this stuff and she can probably give a, a really good snapshot of what's going on here at the moment. And then we can throw to everyone else and, and have a look at how that affects issues, you know, in a more global sense. So. Great. Thanks, Jay. Safe Harbour. It sounds really bad, doesn't it? Really boring. We think it's actually pretty critical for the industry because it's something that the government is considering right now. On about the 23rd of December 2015, they suddenly dropped some proposed legislation on us that hadn't been foreshadowed at all. And in it, they proposed to expand the current safe harbours from internet service providers and broaden it to any sort of online service provider. That's of concern for a number of reasons that mightn't immediately be apparent. But the safe harbour system was originally set up to provide a balance between wanting to make sure that the internet could function effectively and bearing in mind that that's now where the industry lives. I think we're probably about 80% digital now. I think in Australia, I think we'd be moving towards 80% of revenues come through digital means. It's really important that that functions well. So everybody wants a functioning internet. But the trade-off was that internet service providers had to provide effective ways of taking down infringing content, and it was a balance between protecting them from liability for damages when infringing content was found on their systems and balancing the need to have a system that worked. The problem with expanding the scheme as proposed by the government is that it will be available to all service providers. Safe Harbour is supposed to be a limit on the remedies that you, perhaps as a label, can get from a service provider when they infringe. But by limiting the remedies and by limiting damages, it means that the risk for service providers is mitigated to the extent that they perhaps don't have to do very much to remove infringing content. So really what we're after is a balanced system where the internet systems can flourish but there are effective and efficient ways that people can get infringing content taken down quickly and have it stay down. It's important because this really affects your ability to negotiate with big services. 
if they don't have any risk for having your content up there when they shouldn't, it's very hard to negotiate a reasonable fee to be paid. Lynn, can I ask a question? Yeah, sure. Because I'm not aware since I'm from yeah. the US. Is it the same as in the US where it's like a whack-a-mole problem where you can Absolutely. request and, it? Absolutely. And that's a, that's a really good question. And one of the reasons that we are particularly annoyed with the Australian government, and I try to say that nicely, particularly annoyed, is that in the US they've been doing an enormous review of what, what I think is Section 512 about how the safe harbours are or are not working over there. And based on the research and all the hearings and all the evidence being put on, everyone pretty much is agreeing that it isn't working at all. It is whack-a-mole. People are spending a fortune trying to take things down and as fast as you can get it taken down, there are 24 new versions up there. So the material is constantly available and people are expending a great deal of resources getting nowhere. The US has looked at it because they realise it's a problem. The EU has looked at it and already made a directive to try and improve things but Australia is now trying to implement the same system that the US put in 20-something years ago and has worked out doesn't work. So we're a bit frustrated. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, it was put in place for AOL and CompuServe and uh, those kinds of ISPs, and there was no user-generated content or anything at the time, so no one foresaw a situation like YouTube. And, and really, the safe harbours are the way that YouTube manages to effectively blackmail the industry into very low rates, the very low rates that we do have right now. And we just did a survey recently in conjunction with the Future Music Coalition and showed that 68% of independent labels had basically given up on trying to get infringing content taken down because the process was so, you know, it was just so onerous. The, the bottom line is that they have these things, stacked URLs, for example, so the way that the safe harbor take this, it's actually not the safe harbor process, it's what's called the notice and takedown take process, which is once you, you identify some infringing content, you have to send a notification. It's very manual, it's very labor intensive, but you, and you have to identify each URL individually. And then when, once you take that piece down, it just pops up again with another URL. So there's some very malevolent entities out there that know exactly what they're doing. They're working the system. The system was put in place was to protect AOL and CompuServe, which was reasonable from somebody accidentally putting something up or somebody putting something up that wasn't AOL's fault or CompuServe's fault or any of the other ISP's fault because they would get they would get fined one hundred and fifty thousand dollars per instance. But in this case, organizations like YouTube are using it abusively. It's getting better, but it's not where it needs to be. And hopefully the EU directive will fix it because we don't have much hope that Section 512 in the U.S. is going to get resolved largely because U.S. Congress can't get out of its own way. So, you know, it's just kind of a completely dysfunctional system there. So there's been an enormous amount of lobbying going on since December 2015. We've managed to hold it off this long. We managed to persuade um, Minister Firefield to have a bit of an extra bit of consultation, considering there had been none. That finished about a month ago. We understand the department has written a report for the minister, but I wouldn't be surprised if the legislation just pops up again in its previous form and he'll be able to say now that he's consulted. But certainly we're very, very concerned about the impact on people's ability to do sensible deals. And, and really what we're asking the government is to, you know, we all accept there should be a safe harbour scheme. We need the internet to work yeah. uh, because that's where our businesses sit. But we need to have some element of risk at their end so that they are obliged and required to have effective means by which you can have your material 
efficiently taken down when you want it taken down well, what, what we and said, stay down. What we said is, and this is, you, you, we have to be very careful because of antitrust you know, parameters. We, we, we can't sort of jointly agree between labels, you know, what we all should be doing. But what we've asked for is, we said we want the right to say whether something can go up. So, you know, we don't, it cannot be an automatic thing that everything can go up. And then secondly, we want notice and stay down. So if we send a notice for one particular track, that it stays down. It doesn't matter whether it goes up under another URL or anything else. It should, it's okay, this track should not be on your service, period. And every time they identify that track, which they can, they have the technology, and you know, we all know like the Shazam type technology that can identify tracks by their waveforms. Once we identify it, when we want it down, it needs to come down and stay down and never go up again. And there's also something to be said, another argument in, in our arsenal is, is you know, so this is an independent label conference. The vast majority of independent labels are small, right? You know, two, three, four, five people total. We don't have the resources, and so that's a business disadvantage that this law is creating, right? So if you're Sony Music or you're a giant corporation, you can hire someone whose entire job it is to just sit at a desk and take down URLs all day long, and we can't do that. Actually, just to put a final point on that, one of our labels, one of our bigger labels, had a huge hit. I won't say who it was or what it was, but and in the three weeks preceding the release of that record, they spent $200,000 keeping that, that record off of the internet. You know, just labor intensive 24 seven, having to, you know, work it. So, you know, that's beyond the reach of most independent labels. So please write to your local member. <laughs> so I'm just reflecting on, you know, what can be done to kind of support these initiatives. Do you ever think, or any, anyone in particular, that we'd ever get to a point where content ID and these mechanisms can be basically used in the opposite way. Now we have this situation where we have opt-out licensing. So you have to proactively go in and opt out of these services and that's been legislated for. In, in many ways, as Richard pointed out, we could simply flick a switch and do it the opposite way. But what can we do as, as independent labels and, and you know, anyone in the industry to kind of help support the initiatives of, of the trade, trade bodies? And especially when we have kind of trade practices and collective issues in the sphere, it's something that we need to approach as a whole industry and it'd be great to get your insight on that. I think this is a really, really good example of where actually each individual member you know, every music business, every artist can take direct action and that that direct action will have impact. You know, this is an issue globally. It doesn't matter whether you're a major label, an independent label, a publisher, a songwriter, a performer. It really doesn't matter. Our interests are absolutely aligned on this issue. This is probably the biggest single challenge our industry faces. And we have to mobilize around it. And I think, you know, this, this teaches us exactly you know, what this is all about, why we, why we club together in these ways. We club together because actually together we have a really strong voice. That voice now has to be heard. So this is an issue on which I would say, you know, certainly in the UK, on a UK level, on a European level, here in Australia we hear about it, in the US we hear about it. It's probably the same in New Zealand, I'm guessing. I'm guessing it's the same pretty much everywhere because it's a global problem. But where every individual member, I know everybody's busy, everybody's fighting to just keep their head above water, but take 10 minutes, write the email, cut and paste the text that the trade associations send you, get your individual voice in the stack of voices that need to be heard together in harmony to actually get governments to do the right thing on this issue. Yeah, I think that's right. I think you know, being proactive, like even being here today talking about this issue is, is sure, it's a start. 
and you know, I just want to reiterate what Paul said. It's a, you know, we're all collective. We're all here for the right reasons. And yes, you're right. It's the same in New Zealand. Um, you know, we are combining together to, to create a music manifesto to actually talk to our government about those issues. It's a collective effort that will actually make these people aware. You know, the people in government aware of what our issues are, or you know, what we don't like about the the way that they're you know reviewing the copyright laws. I think to an extent, it's about education as well. As, as someone else said, we're all trying to keep our head above water, but the ability to educate and be be here and understand what safe harbour and the impact of it is, I guess, taking it to the to the next level, it's the protection for someone that's infringing rights, but it's something that they can. What the effect of that is is not only is that are they able to get away with the infringing works, but if they do come to the table to to have a discussion and a negotiation around actually licensing works properly, then the table that they're coming to negotiate at is different to the table that someone that is not protected by Safe Harbour. So the, the most clear example is the difference between the negotiations that the industry's had with YouTube and the in negotiations the industry's had with, uh, with Spotify. YouTube can stand behind a safe harbour and say, well, we've got protection here from infringing, but we're going to enter an agreement with you because we feel that it's important to have some monetization of it. But look, we don't have to give the same rates. We don't have to give market rates because we're just doing this out of the good of our hearts, if Google has hearts. But, but Spotify, to actually have a legitimate service, they have to come to the table. They can't negotiate. They can't hide behind safe harbour. So if you take the kind of next step, it's 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 not a, it's it's a, the next battleground is over Facebook and whether Facebook can do it. They're they're on they're currently in a position where they're blocking everything, and that's because a stand's been taken by the music publishers and and there is moves by them to actually have negotiations. They could stand behind safe harbour too because they use generated content. However, there's been moves recently. They I think they just announced they bought a company out of New York that was created that that's quite a new company that that it has technology for tracking, for, for um, data identification and track identification, can can sift through a track and see what track it is. It's similar to the, the program that YouTube have that hasn't been updated in about 15 years. Yeah, yeah, I did write an article on it. They're, they're I was, I was going to say, I mean, I, th- I think... I think uh, three of these people on the, on the panel. Um, yeah, there's a number of other people on this on this panel. Wrote articles, have written articles. Um, Music Business Worldwide ha- have a bunch of articles. Billboard, I, d- uh, I do I believe, but uh, yeah, Music Business Worldwide and look up Safe Harbor there. I, I guess my final point is is education. You're here, understanding and starting to get an understanding of what what the impact of it has can have it can have on your business because it is going to have an impact on your business. The, the fact that YouTube have such pay such low rates has an impact on our business, and these things will have a, have an impact, uh, an ongoing impact if we don't have change. The, the final one is, this might be a slightly controversial opinion, but I didn't actually miss Scott Ludlam leaving the parliament because Scott Ludlam actually is uh, one of the greatest proponents of safe harbour laws. So, and the Greens are, I, I, I'll declare my allegiance, I vote Green, but I actually have had a massive fundamental issue because they are big proponents of safe harbour provisions, which has, an, has a potential, a devastating potential in our industry. So, I know we don't all like engaging in politics, but the conversation, if you, if you have political uh, connection or ties, having this conversation can change because they actually, most politicians, we, there was a Friends of Parliamentary, Friends of Music in, in Parliament House that Lynn was at where we had artists go and talk to these people to actually educate the, the, the parliamentarians because they have Google in their ear telling them how devastating it is to in, innovation in, in, the, in the country. But the more the industry engages with these people, the quicker we can actually start to change the understanding there. I mean, it's crazy, by the way, how much lobbying money Google has. I mean, they refer to the to the White House during the Obama era, which was uh, probably preferable to the era we're in right now in America, but they refer to it as the Google White House. 
and you know there's a there's a famous kind of cartoon of the of the Capitol building with a with a Google flag sticking out of it. I mean, they really owned the White House and 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 the Hill, which is a real problem. They they, they have so much money that they throw at this, and then they have all these other kind of entities that uh, make filings. I think there was something like ninety-seven thousand filings in favor of you know maintaining the status quo with with safe harbors and notice and takedown as it stands right now because it works to their favor. And that those all came basically from Google and Google-related industries. That was Favorite Bloody Patient by Tutan Boa. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes and leave us a review. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. You're listening to The Future of What? This is a panel from IndieCon 2017 with Lynn Small of PPCA, Richard Burgess of A2IM, Paul Pacifico of AIM, Dylan Pellet of IMNZ, and Matt Rogers of Unified, moderated by Jay Mogus of Nightlife. I'm just going to shuffle on. Lynn brought up the EU copyright directive before, and I just thought I'd ask the question, you know, what does that even mean and and what are the key issues? And and Paul, having you here is is an awesome asset, and I thought I'd throw that one to you. Sure. So clearly, safe harbour is is at the heart, in some sense, of the European copyright reform and debate that's going on at the moment. We've had some success with the Parliament in Brussels and the Commission in terms of looking at bringing in elements of liability for platforms and doing some good in terms of closing some of the safe harbour loopholes. But what we see is the legislative equivalent of whack-a-mole. So one, one loophole closes, another opens. And the latest one that's on the, uh, on the table for discussion is a user-generated content exception. 
So copyright is basically irrelevant so long as it's UGC, which, of course, is pretty significant for us. And this is another example. I think what we see in you know, the tail end of that conversation, we're hearing about the way that Google are lobbying, spending a fortune on lobbying. What they've done, I think, very elegantly, and that we failed to actually combat very effectively, is to present these arguments as music versus consumers. So what is good for Google is, is for consumers. And it's a little bit like the gun lobby in the United States talking about freedom all the time. Guns are about freedom. Gun ownership is about freedom. Freedom's a good thing, right? Who can argue with freedom, okay? And the cigarette lobby got on the back of that. The right to smoke, the freedom to smoke. So the tech companies have done a very similar thing in the debate around copyright, which is to, to entirely juxtapose the horrible, greedy music industry against the free consumer and innovation in the space. And we haven't really attacked that properly. And we see, you know, there was a, there was a, a consumer lobby group in, in Europe a couple of weeks ago, which was revealed as being entirely funded by Google. So they are playing this game. And what we're talking about here in closing these loopholes, we're not talking about punishing the consumer, we're talking about actually the share of money that is already on the table. Okay, so this isn't about scraping more money out of struggling consumers, this is about saying, hang on a sec, the consumer's already paying. Okay? This is about the money that's already on the table. So safe harbors is clearly an important issue there. But the European Copyright Review is trying to answer the question, what is copyright's place in the 21st century in a digital market? And particularly in Europe, you've got this still 28 members over my dead body it will probably be, but it, we, you know, obviously we're facing, facing the prospect of Brexit, which is changing the landscape for us in the UK quite a lot. But within those 27 members, how you operate a digital single market, which is kind of interesting because that speaks to some of the global challenges. How do you, how do you have a digital market, a global digital market with global platforms? What does that mean for copyright? And the rights of performers in copyright, you know, these sort of what rights should, have, should performers have and songwriters to assign copyrights? What should be inalienable and non-transferable, in other words? And, and how should those mechanisms work? But there are two other important issues that are also on the table in Brussels. One is portability. And what portability means, in a, in a, in a global population that's moving more, if you subscribe to Spotify in the UK and then you fly to Australia, should you be able to access your Spotify account? Do those payments get paid to the UK license holder or the Australian license holder while I'm here for this conference? Who gets paid and why and when? And basically this came up because there was a commissioner from Holland, I believe, and every time she'd go to Brussels in her car or on the train or whatever it was to go to the, the European sort of institutions, she'd be watching her favorite program on Netflix, and as she crossed the border into Belgium, that program wasn't licensed in Belgium to Netflix and it would stop, and this really upset her. So, <laughs> So this is literally why this got brought into the, into the European legislative agenda. And it's a really important question. I mean, it seems kind of silly, but it is an important question. It's an important question for us. Because if you do a territorial licensing deal and you've got an Australian license, you know, or you guys are in Australia, so let's say you've got a UK record label that you're, you're working with and partnering with and they're doing your, all your work in the UK, and then a bunch of Australians are in the UK, who should get paid? You, as the Australian label? or them as the UK label. So these are, these are increasingly important questions in a population that is increasingly mobile. And then the final one that we should probably mention is geo-blocking. So again, it comes back to two, two, two questions. One is territorial licensing and the ability, and this is particularly important for the independent industry, where you know, the majors have uh, generally got you know, an integrated international delivery mechanism. 
we tend to work in partnership and we collaborate normally on a territorial basis. So the European Union is looking at forcing, whether they should force, companies to license across the European market as one single market, which kind of seems a bit strange because you want an Italian team that speak Italian delivering in Italy, a Spanish team that speaks Spanish delivering in Spain, and you want to be able to perhaps consider giving advances to incentivize them and know how you're going to recoup on those advances, et cetera, et cetera. But the more important and perhaps more dangerous thing that does affect all of us, including the majors, is the idea of the extension of the country of origin principle. And this is the fact that a stream on Spotify has a different value in different territories, just like a Big Mac costs something in America, something here, and something in Cambodia. And your expectation would be that in Cambodia it would be worth less, right? Because the local economy is probably less, people are earning less. And the problem that we're facing in the EU is that it may become possible for EU citizens to take up subscriptions anywhere within the European digital single market. So you can buy your Spotify subscription in Albania and live in the UK. So bang goes our opportunity to actually price our product according to local markets. That could be extremely dangerous. So those are the challenges, the main challenges for us right now in the EU. And we're also going through that, that process of trying to motivate and mobilize members to, to actually become engaged in the debate directly, right to their members of parliament, the members of the European parliament, and really make sure that we don't lose out on these positions and somehow we figure out a way to reinforce confidence with consumer groups that actually, you know, it's not a question of us versus them. And that actually a scarcity of investments in the music market is to the consumer's long-term detriment. Great to get a little perspective on, on you know, the EU changes and what, what legislative changes happen there, the impact that that then has on Australia, New Zealand and, and America. Because quite often the governments look to each other in the way that they design their laws and that it generally has a direct impact on, on what happens in, in our respective regions. I, I mean, I think the EU is, is our big hope in America. And we, we did a whole bunch of round tables on the whole safe harbor notice and takedown issue. And, you know, we've all done tons of filings and written comments. I mean, the most effective thing we've done in the States is a PR campaign, which we actually called uh, Do the Right Thing, Don't Be Evil, which is uh, Google's two slogans. They started out with Don't Be Evil, and then they realized that was a little too kind of predictive of their behavior, so they went to do the right thing, neither of which they've done in this instance. So we actually did a PR campaign. One of our members supplied all their artists, and we got massive amounts of coverage. And during that campaign, we you know, we were in constant dialogue with Google about it. It really bothers them, that kind of negative PR. So don't underestimate the, uh, the power of artists speaking out, particularly, because no one cares about label executives or even trade association CEOs, but they really do care about what artists think. And a lot of artists are afraid to speak out about this stuff, but it's a matter of survival for artists and, and our industry in general that we get these rates up to what they should be. They just should be around market value. And, and Dylan, I know that in New Zealand, they've got a review of the Copyright Act uh, coming up in regards to technology. We're good to get some insights. Yeah, that's right. The, the current incumbent government have, have indicated that they're going to do a copyright review caveat being that there's a general election in New Zealand in September, so they may not be in power. So they are taking it very, very slowly. Yes, they have issued out some terms of reference around a review for copyright, but they're, they're basically sort of said, we're, we're not going to do anything until uh, January next year, which is great for us in terms of the, you know, the creative community to be able to 
gather our thoughts and, and put together a, a good, strong manifesto to, to talk to government about what we see that we want in the, in the copyright review. Lynn, do you think in any way that the New Zealand government might be waiting for the outcomes of the government's recommendations from the Productivity Commission in terms of popularity? Because it, it really becomes a, a lobbying platform in some ways and it's a lot of that stuff really comes down to, you know, if it's a votable platform or not. Yeah, look, I, I don't think they're necessarily waiting. I think they've been planning this review in New Zealand for a long time. Yeah. And I think they had probably expected that the Productivity Commission government response would be available by now. I think we were told it would be available mid-year and we haven't had it yet. But picking up on, on, on some of your comments, I mean, the Productivity Commission's report was a bit of a horror of a report, really. It had some terrible, terrible things in there. For example, one of their findings was that really sound recordings only had a life of five years. So 70 years is just ridiculous. And although that they're not able to make recommendations to change that because of our international obligations, it really seems to have coloured their view on what they think the balance is between creators and, and consumers. And, and already in the Productivity Commission, for example, one of their recommendations is to make sure that the legislation absolutely proactively permits consumers to circumvent any technological protection measures to stop geo-blocking. So it's already very much on the table here and we're just all really hanging out to see how the government responds and which of the recommendations made by the commission they actually might pick up and run with. You know, with members of parliament dropping like flies as they check their passports, of course, maybe nothing will happen, but it's a conversation that's been going on for decades and it's not going to stop. I mean, it won't go away. If it doesn't happen this year, we'll still be talking about it next year. I think one of the great ironies for me in a lot of this debate is that, you know, the, the Productivity Commission, the, the EU Directive and even the US Copyright Office, in, in, on one hand, are creating all of these loopholes and, and doing all of this stuff, and on the other hand, they're also driving a, a transparency agenda. And it's like, you know, I guess in some ways you can't have both, or is it a, is it a, a horse trade, so to speak? But you would think that the technology available is, is there and able to be implemented in a way that enables people to have complete control of their rights, yet, yet they're still coming through with you know, the, these kind of loopholes that allow the, the, the Google books in the world to, to get away with these issues. And something you know, particularly relevant, I think, to, to independence, because transparency is a big thing, but when you have these, these other things hanging over that are restricting the marketplace in, in such an artificial form, I wonder, you know, what, what can artists do to really get behind and support and push through a, a lot of these kind of clouds that are hanging over the marketplace? I mean, I think it, what I said before, you know, artists have a real impact. I mean, artists can get the front page. We, we had the, uh, I don't know if it's the front page, but we had large articles in The Guardian and various other significant media outlets from this, you know, small campaign we did. And, and it's got to be a sustained campaign, you know. We have to get our voice out there. I mean, Paul said it before, you know, we've done a terrible job of, of really stating our case. You know, Google's been incredibly effective of making it the, the evil music industry versus the consumer. And, you know, my point is, you know, people say, well, you know, we've got to get the value back in music. The value never went out of music. What happened is it just got reappropriated by, by these tech companies. So you look at, you know, what YouTube's become in just 10 years. It was at 12 years now Google's been, go YouTube's been going. I mean, it's this gigantic organization that makes 
untold amounts of money. They don't even disclose what they make from music. And that's music that's built that organization. Same thing with Spotify. Now, Spotify does pay reasonably well, but music has great value. It's just not coming through to the labels and the artists and the writers and so on and so forth. And that's what we really have to do. We have to claw back that value and, and make sure it goes to the creators, because otherwise there won't be a music. There won't be any music anymore. I think further to, further to your point, Richard, we all saw a couple of years ago when, when artists started to speak out about payments from Spotify, yeah. the, 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 the backlash that appeared, oh, streaming's going to kill the industry and, oh, it's terrible for artists. So I, think, I think that conversation really sparked our industry into kind of going, okay, we've got to educate our artists that it actually is a good thing and, and in the long run it's going to be worth more to you. Similarly, I think that, that if the artists are educated on these kind of topics and are prepared to speak on them, speak to them like they did in Parliament House with us, then that cut through is, is, is incredibly powerful. So uh, I implore you to have conversations with your artists and, and, and if, if they're prepared to have these, be part of these uh, conversations or be part of a campaign, it, it's about their future as well. And that's, that's how we've got to phrase the conversation. It's about their future, the, the income that's going to come to them for, for years to come and how they're going to continue to get paid. That was Puppet Charm by Tutan Boa. Want an even closer look at issues we talk about on the show? Our monthly newsletter will keep you informed about news, upcoming events, episodes, and more. You'll also have access to exclusive offers and behind-the-scenes looks. Sign up at killrockstars.com slash the future of what. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. 
Kill Rockstars has partnered with Merch Table for almost six years now, and they've come through for us in a lot of ways. Like when the comedian Kurt Brownoller wanted a face towel with his face on it? Merch Table found a way to make this, and it's been one of our most popular items in our mail order store. KRS loves Merch Table. Hey guys, we're celebrating our 100th episode with a live taping and party at Holocene on October 25th, followed by a free dance party DJed by the awesome Strange Babes. Starting at 7 p.m., I'll be interviewing some great Portlanders, including Corin Tucker, Peter Buck, Laura Veers, and City Commissioner Chloe Udaly. This event is part of X-Ray FM's Fall Fun Drive, and the $5 cover goes to X-Ray, but Future of What newsletter subscribers get in free. So sign up now at killrockstars.com slash thefutureofwhat. You're listening to The Future of What. This is a panel from IndieCon 2017 with Lynn Small of PPCA, Richard Burgess of A2IM, Paul Pacifico of AIM, Dylan Pellet of IMNZ, and Matt Rogers of Unified, moderated by Jay Mogus of Nightlife. The discussion on value and use that to kind of segue into the next section, and, and really that's about the, the recognition of sound recordings in the, in the US, and I thought I'd, I'd throw to Portia on that to give a little bit of an overview and break it down for us. So for everyone who's not aware, the US is amongst, I think, four other countries in the developed world who do not pay on the master recording copyright side of radio play, terrestrial radio play, and that would be China, North Korea, and Iran, I think, and, and the US, yay! So we're in great company there, and um, everybody else here, all you guys all pay for, for terrestrial radio play for, for the performers, the performance royalties. So this has been an issue that has been a, a problem for years and years and years. And it's come in front of Congress multiple times with varying, well, with no success, of course, at all. But lately, in late years, a bill has been introduced. Last In the last Congress, it was introduced as the Fair Play, Fair Pay Act. It got a bunch of signatures. It did pretty well. And then that Congress ended. So the new Congress has, it's been reintroduced in the new Congress and the positive signs, for what it's worth, are that there are 50% more signers now on the bill than there were this time in the last Congress, which is one positive sign. And the other positive sign is that the chairman of the committee, Goodlatte, he is, this is his last Congress, he's going to be leaving after this, and he wants to have a legacy. So all the Washington insiders are saying that he wants to actually get some stuff done, and this might be one of the pieces of legislation that he could actually get done and have be part of his legacy. That said, you may or may not be aware that nothing goes on in our Congress right now <laughs> at all. So, you know, for what it's worth, that's where we're at with that. But, you know, it, should we ever get a terrestrial radio royalty, we could join the rest of the world. We could pay the reciprocal monies that we owe Australia and the UK and everywhere else. All the money that you guys are holding for us could flow into the US as taxable income, which we make that point in front of Congress year after year after year. Like, there's lots of money out there, guys. Uh, you know, the US is a net cultural exporter. We've got a lot of music getting played in other, in other places. We could really use that money. So we'll see. I mean, I'm a little, you know, I'm a little disheartened at the moment, but, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, on, the, I'm on the negotiating committee for that, and uh, we're meeting with the NAB. I don't know if you understand how our system works, but it's all to do with money, you know. So 
the lobbyists, basically how it works is they, they support the politicians' campaigns, and so it's always a horse trading exercise. It's incredibly difficult. If they took the money out of politics in America, we might actually get something done, but it's never going to happen, and that's why we have insane gun laws there, and that's why we have these insane problems with copyright. I'm actually optimistic, and I can't say too much because we're under informal NDA, but I will say that I think there are a number of parameters coming together right now that make this unique. As Portia said, this negotiation has been going on for 97 years. Radio launched in 1920, and another three years now, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm calling it a century of shame that they haven't paid artists and labels. But I think that what's happening is we're, 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 the end of terrestrial radio may be in sight because more and more people are listening to radio on their phones and so on. And I think most people don't realize it's not actually FM or AM radio on their phones. It's digital, and so once it's digital, we do get paid. But we, we you know, we've been able to sort of we, we made a presentation to the NAB, and they received it well, actually, which was interesting. So we'll see what they come back with us on. I think the. Uh, connected devices like Alexa and the Echo and so on uh, having an impact. The fact that people can walk out of their house listening to Bluetooth on their phone via their home system and get into the car and continue listening to the same program, this is all freaking the radio stations out because they're realizing that uh, you know they no longer dominate those five or six buttons on their car radio and so on. And, you know, as we get more and more into the connected car, connected dashboard, autonomous cars, everything's going to change. I mean, in a connected car, you could watch videos. So I think this sort of technological, there's a nexus that we're, we're hitting that I think may lead us to a deal that have been impossible. I think there's been 26 attempts since 1920 to get this deal, including people like Frank Sinatra were behind it, and he couldn't get it done. Bruce Springsteen couldn't get it done. Just picking up on something you said there, Portia, American artists actually can't get their performer royalties out of Australia uh, direct because we don't pay performers their 50% share. Exactly, right. We, there is no reciprocity. Um, I just want to make a, a kind of quick comment, and then I might throw it to Lynn. Uh, there was an article, I think it was about 2015, where they said, um, oh, it costs us radio stations $6 to play a song. I'm like, yeah, but how much do you earn out of that song? If that's, you know, 1.5% of your gross for APRA and, and the artificial radio caps that we have in Australia at 1%, they must be earning over $100 for every song that they play. And it's, it's a thing of rhetoric. And I, I just sort of throw to Lynn in the context that we are under these 30-year-old artificial limits where they... they 40, yep. 40, yeah. 40 and counting, yeah. Lucky I said excuse me if I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah. And look, it's, it's still an ongoing thing, and I, I credit you for, for the battle that you've had to separate the simulcast rights from broadcast rights, yeah. and that, that's really future-proofing value for the music industry. But let's sort of get your insights on, on where and when, if we could ever address that radio cap issue here. Oh, my third CEO, and I can say they've all worked really hard to try and get that changed. We got really close in the mid-2000s, and I think we had the then minister who actually put out a press release he was going to fix it. But it's a big thing for government to take on radio. They are a very powerful, very powerful lobby group, as, as Richard's been saying. And really what we're referring to is the cap in legislation that is put on the fees that we can ask radio to pay for the use of sound recordings. No such cap exists in parallel for the musical work. So we often look to the rates that APRA has been able to achieve to see how much it's costing us. And I think if you look on APRA's website, the radio broadcast rates range somewhere between 3 and 5%. We currently get 0.4%. Because it's capped at 1%, legislatively, no one can be asked to pay more than that. 
and then they discount for things like the US recordings they don't have to pay for at all. So we estimate it's costing you know PPCA about 20 to 24 million dollars a year, which would of course be almost 100% paid through because we're already distributing the small amount that we get. So there's no additional work to distribute that money. We just have some extra zeros. It also applies to the ABC. Much as the ABC is beloved and, you know, Triple J's, we're all very happy with what they do for Australian music. But in 1969, that one was set at half a cent per head of population. So in, in the 40 years hence, we haven't even had a CPI. So we're still getting, I think last year we got about $121,000 from the ABC for all of the sound recordings they play across all of their radio networks all around Australia. When you consider that that rate was established so long ago, has never been adjusted, and it also hasn't been adjusted when you consider the incredible growth in the amount of recordings they're using. I mean, they used to have one radio station, now they have a series of networks. So it's, it's pretty offensive, really. But it is incredibly difficult to get politicians to take on radio, because particularly for regional politicians, that is how they speak to their electorate. There's the ABC or there's the local radio station, and that's where they go. So we keep chipping away. I think separating simulcast was helpful because there was no limit on that, so we licensed that separately and we ran a case in the tribunal to get that independently valued. We didn't get what I would have hoped, but it's still much, much better than where we were. So it's it's chipping away, and I like to think I'll live to see it. I hope so too. Nowhere close anytime soon. <laughs> Thanks for your work and all of that. There's, um, there, there's one statistic that I think points out the insanity of this, and that's that in, in the U.S., the radio industry generates 18, just shy of 18 billion dollars a year. If you take out talk radio and sports radio and everything and just leave music radio, it generates about 11 billion dollars a year. Now, the U.S. music industry is a $7.5 billion right now. So we've got a situation where radio is making more from music than the music industry that creates the music is making from music. I mean, if that's not just wrong, then I don't know what is. And, and Richard, in Australia, the radio industry is actually, despite the onset of digital, they're still posting increases every quarter. So while at some stage you're right, it may turn around, at present, we're still seeing them do really, really well. I think one of the big scare tactics that radio use is that, you know, when, when it comes to lobbying politicians, the one place that they succeed really well in terms of advertising is radio. And uh, radio will just go, hey, we're not going to play your ads if you're going to play that game. So, you know... It's, it's, it's a, a strong environment and I just, I'd like to thank you know, Lynn and PPT and Ari for all the work they've done on that and, and encourage everyone to kind of get behind raising the value of sound recordings because it's, it puts more creativity back into the market and it's an important issue. I'm going to use that to segue to our last section, Joint Collections Societies. We're talking about public performance, not reefers. But I'd throw to Dylan just because One Music NZ has been going for a year or so and I know it's coming to Australia for, you know, One Music and, and PRS and PPL are moving in that direction too, but it'd be great if you could lead that off in terms yeah, of... Yeah, so, so One Music, it's been going for three or four years now and seems to be running pretty, pretty well. What One Music is, is a joint venture between APRA, AMCOS and PPNZ, which is the counterparts to PPCA here in Australia. So it's a joint venture where they are able to receive a mandate to go out to the, the cafes and the, the restaurants and the businesses that, that license music to, to play on their premises and collectively uh, negotiate a license for the both copyrights, basically, the, the master recording and the songwriting copyright. I like to call it one invoice because 
that's pretty much what the the restaurant owner receives or, or is given to understand. Their their business is is perhaps you know making meals. They don't really understand or want to know that there's two copyrights to to be licensed when they're playing music in their business. So yeah, I call it one one invoice, and it seems to be working it, it, in terms of the number of businesses in New Zealand that they're licensing. The amount of income that they're getting in has increased over those three years. They're, they're all pretty happy there, and uh, like you said, it's uh, one music. Uh, is, is coming to Australia. There's a similar one in the UK, is that right, Paul? It should be launched in November. Mm. At last. It's bonkers, isn't it? You know, you run a hairdresser, right? And some guy comes to the door, knocks on your door and goes, you need a music license. It's going to cost you, you know, 500 bucks. So you pay it. Two weeks later, a guy comes to your door. You need a music license. I got one. No, you don't. That's the other one, you see. It's like, the, do you remember that Monty Python film, like The Life of Brian? We're the people's front of Judea. No, we're the Judean people's front. You know, it's <laughs> nuts. Yeah. So, and so those business owners, they just get so confused about that sort of thing. So, so it's, um, yeah. it's a really good, efficient way to, to sort of increase the, the amount of income that's received for the music being played in those businesses. I think well, directly, there's got to be a proportionality to the increase in revenue and the decrease in kind of, you know, anger. Yeah. anger. Anger and this, and this, we come back to the impression, you know, this is the stuff that's so easy to prey on and, and build this picture of a greedy music industry that punishes good people who love music and these greedy record companies that don't pay artists and you know this rhetoric is incredibly powerful and i think you know simple administrative fixes like this i mean if we don't do this kind of thing you know why are we in business we're a licensing business ultimately we have to be able to license efficiently effectively smoothly easily Exactly, and and the other end, the, the outcome for this for, for artists and labels, um, you know, particularly we're talking about independent labels here, is that they're seeing more income, they're seeing more revenue coming through from those, um, you know, from the increase in number of businesses being licensed. So you're seeing now an increase in the value of your copyrights over, you know, over time. It's increased, you know, the, the actual dollar value that you'd potentially earn having your music played in those those places, bars and clubs, etc. In New Zealand, are you seeing the kind of cost savings that we're hoping for in the UK? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, talking talking with uh, Greer from One Music just this week, really about it. And uh, yeah, they are they're seeing a lot of inefficiencies. Of course, you know, it's obvious that uh, they've now cut down the the. You don't need two people to go out to, to license the one business these days. It's, it's just the one team. And then they're, they're passing on those efficiencies to the, the copyright holders. So, yeah, it's, um, they're all positive. I, I didn't actually get the chance to ask if there's any negatives in terms of are, are the artists unhappy about that or are the labels unhappy about it? But I have not heard, personally, I've not heard anything you know, bad about the system running this way for a you know, number of years. So... Is there anything anyone else wants yeah. to kind of throw yeah, up? I, just, I guess. just wanted to add to, to the, the the idea around or the ethos around One Music in terms of more you know increased efficiencies. It's also it's not so much for the for the arts and labels for, for the the businesses that are being licensed. Back when it was just two two separate people coming to them and asking for you know two separate licenses, often the framework around say the the PPNZ license was different to the APRA AMCOS license. So. You know, over the last two or three years, they've, they've worked very, very hard to, to make sure that they've got a level playing field now. They've, they've got a, you know even set of parameters when they're going out and licensing these businesses, which obviously makes the, the life of the business owner a lot easier to understand or to try to you know, grasp the concept of copyrights in the first place, uh, let alone the square meterage of their building or how many songs they're playing you know, per hour, et cetera, et cetera. So, 
Yeah, there's, there's been um, a lot of work done in New Zealand about you know making it a, a lot simpler for the business owners, which then, as I said, it sort of flows on in terms of the increased revenue through to the to the label owners and uh, songwriters. Yeah, because there's a, a reduced administration cost on, in terms of yeah. you know a joint license, and then doing that by tiers then reduces a large number of tariffs down to a number of tiers, which is a really simple structure for businesses to understand. Exactly. But it also makes the administration of royalties a lot easier as well. But I guess from a label perspective or from an artist perspective, does that then guarantee, I guess, that flow through to artists in terms of, of, of less administration costs, more yeah. flow through to artists yeah. as well? Yeah, and also a, a lot more accuracy in terms of what songs are being identified and yeah. reported through. Yeah, because you have the, then the, the joint effort of, of you know, works and, and sound recordings coming through on the same basis. So do you see like a, a, a bigger investment in technology in terms of tracking kind of what content's played under, under what tariff or what yes. tier of what tariff and yeah, so forth? And yes, exactly. There's, uh, there's you know, the software, the, the music identification software that's, that APRA are using. It's not necessarily a one music thing, but it's an APRA initiative in New Zealand to use in the live sphere going out to, to dance promoters, most importantly, because it's kind of always hard to identify what tracks the DJ played in their set. So yeah, they're using software to, to record the sets and then report it. I think it's going through Amsterdam. They send the information up to Amsterdam for some reason. Yeah, and then uh, D DJ, DJ Monitor. monitor right. And, and, and uh, Pioneer, I think, are, are doing another project with Kubo. Yeah. And they, they're claiming 100% accuracy on this, this stuff or, or close to it. Uh, so it's, it's great. I think it's, it's really healthy. And the, the promoters in New Zealand, they've, they've been going for six months now, I think it was. They, they just licensed a couple of festival promoters over summer. And the feeling was good. The feeling was, was positive about it. And obviously the, the copyright owners are, are happy about it because they, you know, they're getting remunerated for it. We're, we're seeing a similar thing in the UK. Uh, there's a lot of talk now about the pilot scheme, doing black boxes in clubs and venues so that there's, you know, really accurate reporting. And, and I just, you know, as a, as a musician, it wasn't so long ago I'd be sitting backstage in clubs and venues handwriting set lists into forms in triplicate in Italy, for example, it's in triplicate, Christ. Uh, you know, how can that be a way to do business in this market? When, when you're talking about such, you know, each individual song is worth so little in those circumstances, yeah? So the amount of time to write it out, someone else is gonna do something with that piece of paper, may get torn, may get lost, may get beer spilt on it, type it in, get it right, spell it right, yeah, it's nuts. So I think, you know, the quicker we can see the rollout of these things, I think the quicker we'll start to see our industry finding some real uplift from those markets. Is anyone else? Uh, yeah, I've just got one final uh, thing to offer the, the crowd. Air, so, uh, along with, uh, and it's slightly related to this, but I guess it's uh, it's more actual business oriented for, for you all. Air, in association with WIN uh, and the other uh, trade bodies around the world, will be launching very shortly a, a partnership with a company called Muso. Muso is a online service for tracking and tracking, taking down infringing works. A, lo a number of the very large independent labels use this software globally to, uh, it, it, it costs, it's a very, very small cost per release and it's and it's rolled out and you you just input your album and it can track pre-release and then track after release any infringing uh, sites around the world there's a partnership being established with worldwide independent network and it's rolled out in the u.s it's just in in, in trial version in the u.s and air will be launching it shortly there's
there's a uh, there'll be a free tier for labels and then there'll be further tiers that you can pay to track all of your releases and help takedowns across the world so it's going to be a service that air is bringing to its members so we're very very proud but i thought i'd ask richard and and while paul were here paul are here to, to offer just a couple of comments about what the value of that is to a label we're really early in the process but all i can say is that when we sent out the first email blast to our members we had a massive return of interest and uh, we haven't heard back because you sign up direct with Muso, not with, with us. So we're waiting to hear back from Muso how many labels signed up. But I can say when we took this on, there are a number of competing systems. This is not the only system out there that does, that does this. But one of our bigger independent labels uses Muso and they've been very happy with it. So you know, this is being offered at a, at a favorable price to our members and apparently will be to air members as well. So, so far, I'd say the uh, reports are good. Very positive. Yeah, so take a look. MUSO, very, very good service. We've used it on releases before, and it, it, it's very, very helpful in uh, in helping. There, there's limited things that we can do to, to, to stop piracy, but this is certainly one one strong one that's uh, been used by a lot of similar labels around the world. Yeah, I think from a UK perspective, certainly there have been some issues over, uh, historically in terms of provision of, of threshold anti-piracy services to the independent community. So we've, we've undertaken quite an intensive review of what's out there in the market. Um, you know, I've had the benefit of, of some of the kind of commercial pitches from a lot of the, a lot of the providers. And, and one thing I would say is that, first of all, for the independent sector, for companies, you know, large, established independent labels, micro-labels, self-releasing artists, to have parity in this kind of idea that there is a threshold you know, that they all benefit from. All the AIR members, all the AIM members, all the A2IM members can sit there in confidence that they're receiving a basic level of protection, okay, is, is incredibly important. But the second thing that gets me actually excited, I don't get too excited about anti-piracy, but what I do get excited about is the business insights that delivers. So once you can start interrogating your anti-piracy software and see what's happening in terms of the piracy landscape, that, that, that is an incredibly powerful business intelligence tool in terms of how you should maybe be directing or, 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 or developing campaigns for artists and, and for career development. Look, I'm conscious of time, and this has been a, an absolutely awesome panel for me. I'd just like to thank uh, everyone on the panel for, for their contributions. And um, yeah, if everyone could kind of join me in giving them a big thanks, that'd be great. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Two Ton Boa and, of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by The Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash thefutureofwhat and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Saban, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.